first of all. Why is it important to talk about philosophy? I think philosophy is very important to talk about because philosophy, unlike science or a lot of other things, research, it gives you direct access to knowledge just from your reason alone and from your logic. What do I mean by that? When we prove something through philosophy, through deductive arguments, if P, then Q, P, then Q, if we look at a valid argument, a sound argument from philosophy, all you have to do is go through it in your mind to know that it's true, to know that you really exist or you're really in this room. Those are things that you don't have to leave this room, go on a computer and research, do I exist? You can just go through the arguments and the set of logic to find out if that's true. Unlike science, sometimes you have to, someone will have this theory why evolution is false, and then someone says, well, this is why evolution is true and you have to research the data and go on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not reliable. You don't know what to believe. So science at best supports a premise that's part of an argument uh, in philosophy. So science kind of supports, gives evidence for premises that are in a philosophical argument. And that's what it's good for. But in philosophy, you have that argument that's laid out there that you can just reason with people. You don't even have to go anywhere. They don't have to research anything. That's why I really like it. So that's what we're going over today. And in Romans chapter 1, if you look at verse 18, it talks about how Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So, I think that a lot of times people will say there is no God. The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because the Bible speaks and creation reveals that God exists. It's in our DNA, it's in the things that we see, and there's this inner longing inside of us for something higher than ourselves. So I think at best, atheism, as you remember, is the position that there is no God. You know for certain there is no God. That's a very strong decision. And you have to ask the person who is an atheist, what brought you to that conclusion? Are you really convinced beyond a shadow of the doubt there is no God? And they'll, they'll usually say something like, well, maybe there's a God, I just don't have any evidence for it. So you've changed them from an atheist to agnostic in a question. So at best, or at worst, I should say, they should at least be an agnostic. Agnostic says, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the possibilities. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God. But to be an atheist is to say, you know for certain that there is no God. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said, if one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him. I think a lot of people have reasons not to believe in God. It means there's no accountability. You can do whatever you want. You can rise and become your own God. You can rule the world. You can be on display and you can have people worship you instead. 
So people oftentimes have agendas for not believing in God. And I think some other people just aren't sure or haven't come to the conclusion yet in which you should be agnostic and not an atheist. So I want to start off by saying when we, when we look at knowledge, we know that knowledge puffs up, right? So we don't want to go into talking about these things with our friends that aren't Christians. Or maybe if, if you're not even a Christian here today, that's fine. We're not here to win arguments. We're here to win people. When I was in high school, there was some atheist that was challenging me. I didn't know the answer, but I was like, but I know my youth pastor knows. He'll show him up. So I called my youth pastor. I was like, you need to debate this guy, make him look stupid. And he's just like, why would I do that? I'm not going to do that. And I was like, why not? You need to show him up. And he's like, well, we're here to win people, not win arguments. So that has to be our underlying motivation. And oftentimes it can get really heated. You know, when you're in a debate with someone about if God exists, it can get very personal. But you always want to remember you are there not to look right, not to look smart. You are there to help the person and to love that person. So I think the most humble thing and the best thing you could do is if you don't always have the answer, which you won't, you always give them an opportunity to follow up with you. You say to that person, you know what, I, that's a very great question. I don't know the answer, but I think I might know where to find the answer. So if I can get your information, I'll follow up with you. And now you've built a relationship with that person. Never try to admit beyond what you don't know because if the person who's an atheist makes you look stupid because you base it on evidence that doesn't exist or you're just going off the top of your head sometimes, not only do you make yourself look bad, you make Christians in general look bad. And then the atheist is even more convinced in his atheism. And that's what we want to avoid. But in simple analysis of arguments, you can dismiss their entire uh, preposition that they might have. And I think a lot of people are thrown in by these arguments because they sound really powerful and they don't know what to do with it. For instance, what if I told you today, the only reason you're a Christian is because you grew up in America or you grew up in a Christian home. And if you grew up in India, you might have not been a Christian. You would have been a Hindu, like Richard Dawkins said. What would you say to that? Say so the only reason you're a Christian is because you were raised that way. You know what that's called? It has a name. It's called the genetic fallacy. Yes. Yes, Evan. Great. So the genetic fallacy debunks a belief, attempts to debunk a belief based on how the person came to know that belief. For instance, if you grew up in, let's say you grew up in Africa in the year 1200 or something, you might have grown up believing that the earth was round. Even though you grew up in the 1200s or whatever, you grew up believing that the earth is round, that doesn't mean that the earth really isn't round because it is round. Or maybe you believe that the earth is, is, is flat just because you're raised in a certain part. Just how you're raised has nothing to bear on the truth of an argument. So just the fact that maybe you really would have been uh, atheist, maybe you really would have been a Hindu if you grew up in India, but that has nothing to say about the validity of an argument. So moving on. Uh, we're going to start off with the cosmological argument. That is the argument from the cosmos. And it basically goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, it follows inescapably that the universe had a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a 
a cause for its existence. Now what could the cause of the universe be? Because we know at the point of the, the Big Bang, which is also known as the initial cosmological singularity, at that point of infinite density, we know that all time, space, and matter came into existence. So when we say that something caused the Big Bang or something caused the beginning of the universe, we mean that something that was timeless, uncaused, spaceless, and without matter existed before the universe to cause it. Now what could exist before the universe in this timeless, uncaused, spaceless, materialist way? Well, there's only probably two possibilities that I can think of. Number one would be an abstract object like a number or a shape, perhaps the number four or, or the a round square or a concept like that and we know that's contradictory but you think of objects, a color, that's an abstract object and that can exist apart from time, space and matter or an unembodied mind. But we know that abstract objects can't cause anything to existence. For example, the number four or a square can't make me happen. But it's a lot more plausible to say that a mind can create intentionally a universe. So what we're not saying is we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God exists. I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying what is more reasonable? The reasonable man will follow the evidence where it leads. And the evidence seems to show in the favor of theism. So let me go into detail in each of the premises. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Have you ever asked yourself, why does something exist rather than nothing? Because you see, if nothing existed in the beginning, meaning there is not anything in the beginning, nothing would exist now. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. But, so we're left with a, a weird predicament because now something exists. You can't deny this because you have to be here in order to deny that we exist. So everyone here admits that we exist. But if we exist, something exists and something has always existed because out of nothing, nothing would come. So something has always existed. Now, if something has always existed, we have to ask, well, is matter eternal? And it would seem that uni the universe and matter is not eternal. We're going to get that in premise two. But some people would say, well, maybe the universe just popped into being. Maybe nothing can produce something. But then we have to ask, why is it only universes that pop into existence? Why can't it be unicorns? Why can't baseball bats and elephants and people and numbers? And why can't these things just pop into existence if universes can somehow pop into existence? So the first premise is based on the idea that every pile of books has a bottom of books. Every uh, instance in which something begins to exist must have a cause. Things don't just begin to exist without causes. And we have scientific reasons to believe in the beginning of the universe. And we know that from, uh, and this is premise two now, there are scientific reasons to believe in the beginning of the universe. And some of you have talked about the law of thermodynamics. If the universe is expanding, there had to be a point in which it began to expand. So uh, I think it was Aristotle that talked about the unmoved mover. But I'm going to give you one theorem from science called the bord guth vilenkin theorem. The bord guth vilenkin theorem says that any universe which is on a rate of constant expansion must have an absolute beginning. And this includes any string theory, M theory, multiverse model, any universe which is expanding 
including the one that we see, must have a beginning. Agnostic astronomer Robert Jastrow says, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commence suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. So even this agnostic admits, and if you look at any science textbook, you'll read about the Big Bang. There was a point in which the universe had a beginning. There are also philosophical reasons to believe, not just scientific. We know modern science leans to say the universe was not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning. And we know there are philosophical reasons to believe this as well. For instance, infinity is not an actual number. And what I mean by that is an actual infinite of an actual infinite existing past events does not actually exist in reality. It's a concept in your mind and it doesn't play out in reality. So here's an example to kind of represent that. Let's say you had an infinite amount of coins and you have them numbered 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way to infinity. Let's say you had that infinite, infinite amount of coins and you subtracted all the odd numbered coins. So you take 3 and uh, 7 all the way to infinity. How many coins do you have left? Well, you still have all the even amount of coins to infinity. So infinity minus infinity equals infinity because you still have an infinite amount of coins. But let's say you took an infinite amount of coins and they're still numbered the same way. You took away all the coins. How many you have left? You have infinity minus infinity equals zero because you took away all the coins. Now let's say that you had all the coins and you took away all the ones above three. So infinity minus infinity equals three because you have three coins left. So you have any number that you want. And this shows that infinity is not an actual concept. An actual uh, infinity does not exist in reality. Now, think about it this way. Because now the question might pop in your mind, then what about God? How is it that God could exist eternally but not be an infinity? Well, God too cannot have an infinite amount of past events. Which means he can't have... Uh, a number of thoughts that are one, two, three, four, and then he creates the universe. He has to have all of his knowledge simultaneously. When he existed timelessly before the universe, everything was one present and one now. So then you might ask, how is God able to create the universe if he was in a timeless state? Like I brought it up before. Well, God had an attribute in addition to his omnipotence, omniscience, all these things. He had... Uh, his free will and free agency, which allowed him to a finite time ago create the universe. So the interesting thing about infinity is there will never be a point in which we eternal beings will say, I've been alive for infinity. Even when we continue to live forever in heaven, we will always have a finite amount of days that we've been alive. So there'll never be a point in infinity and eternity which you say, I've been alive for infinity. Because there's no such thing as an actual infinite amount of past events. So that shows philosophically that the universe cannot be uh, past infinite. It had to have an absolute beginning. If the universe is past infinite, we can never come to the now. Because you could always traverse one moment before that. So let's go to the objections to this argument. If I've lost you so far, don't worry, I'll try to slow down a little bit. Objections to premise one. They might say, 
Well, we aren't really sure what the early stages of the universe look like. Maybe the nothingness bubbled in a certain way. If you look under a microscope or you look, you know, with the Higgs boson, you might know that you look at these particles, like the God particles, and see that nothingness produces something. Well, in response to that, I would say it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what the early stages of the universe look like. You still are left with the philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing. I'm not talking about the early stages of the universe or what happened with the bubbling of the Big Bang or how it happened. We're asking why did it happen in the first place. Objection two, law of conservation matter. This one's a funny one. People would say, haven't you heard of the law of conservation matter? It says that matter is not created nor destroyed. So, since matter is neither created nor destroyed, the universe never really did exist. So it's, it's not like anything was created or anything wasn't created. Everything has always been existing in this kind of weird kind of way. But this is kind of like, you kind of analyze this and you ask the question, have I always existed? Was I around before I was born? What, what they're saying is your atoms and the matter rearranged in a kind of mirrorological essentialism kind of way, it becomes something when it's arranged in a certain way. And so that's what we mean when we exist. We're not saying that new matter is created or anything or destroyed. And on top of that, the law of conservation matter is only a scientific observation since the universe was created. It has nothing to say about where the origins of matter come and what the future of matter will be. So that's kind of a funny one. It's not like I haven't always existed and even if things do exist in this kind of a range way. All we have to do is change the argument to say that instead of things existing, uh, things coming to exist without a cause, all we have to say is things arranged, atoms arranged in a kind of way. Because that's what we mean by existing anyway. So it's just making it politically correct. Objection three. Well, if the universe needs a cause, it needs to be made, who made God? That's a good one. Especially because it sounds so stupid and you don't know what to do to to refute a lot of times, right? So they'll be like, who made God? Well, there's a couple answers you can, give to, you can give to this one. Number one is the best explanation for a phenomena does not itself need an explanation to be a good explanation. The best explanation of a phenomena does not itself need an explanation to give you an explanation of that phenomena. So what do I mean by this? If we look at a painting and we say, wow, look at that painting. Someone must have painted that painting. We don't then say, well, yeah, okay, Zach Stolzfist painted that painting. You don't go then say, well, who painted Zach? <laughs> you don't need an explanation of who painted Zach. It's, it's the wrong question. So we're saying only things that have beginnings need causes. We're not saying everything needs a cause. That's never been a form of the argument. What we're saying is everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. And I don't think anything more illogical than believing that things just pop into being out of nothing and things just begin to exist without causes. So God did not have a beginning, the universe did. So what about premise two? Here's objection number four. Well, what about the multiverse of string theory? Couldn't the universe always exist in this kind of, uh, well, let me explain what the multiverse is in case you don't know. Multiverse says that there's, our universe is but a part of a, world ensemble of universes kind of coordinating in a way where they're always eternal and they don't need a beginning. But 
the board guth vilenkin theorem applies to this model so that even the multiverse itself you can ask, well, why is it there? String theory, the same thing. They say universe pops into existence and pops out of existence and they're all linked together. But you still ask, why is it there? You still need a reason. If anything, it just pushes our universe back a step and says, well, okay, maybe the beginning isn't what we thought it was, but we still need to know why does it exist? Well, premise three, objection five. People would say, in free inquiry, it says, the universe exploded out of nothingness. Anthony Kenny says, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, uh, he's a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, he says, at least, what is this? Oh, that's why it says that. Sorry. He says, a person must believe that they are an atheist, that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing. The universe came from nothing and by nothing. How does that make sense? Well, a popular cosmologist named Lawrence Krauss tries to reify nothing. And what he says is, we're not really sure what the early stages of nothing look like. Of course, nothing began the universe and nothing was before the universe, but we're not really sure what nothing is. If you look at empty space, you'll, you look at it and you notice there's things bubbling so that the universe is always apt to come into existence. Things are always existing out of nothing. So he has this whole book written, written on why there's something rather than nothing. But all he's done is change the meaning of nothing. When he talks about empty space, he's not talking about nothing. When he's talking about vacuum states and what happens inside of them, he's not talking about nothing. He's talking about something. He's talking about the vacuum state. He's talking about empty space. Empty space is not nothing. So when we say nothing, what we mean is not anything. Just like if you're asking a history question and said, well, who ended the, World War, uh, the Second World War? And you say, well, no one did yet. And you say, oh, that's great, it stopped. Like, no, no one did. Like, yeah, you just said no one. Yeah, but I, I meant like no one did. I meant not anyone did. Like, oh, why don't you just say not anyone? So when we say no one, we're talking about not anyone. We're talking about not anything. Just like if you went into school and they're like, oh, did you see anybody at school today? No, I didn't see anyone. Well, how was anyone? I'm not saying anyone. I'm saying not anybody was there. It's the same thing. And they're just doing this uh, semantic trick to say that nothing created the universe, which is obviously stupid. Also on that, no, I'll just keep going. Okay, objection six, the fallacy of composition. This one sounds intelligent and I doubt anyone's going to bring this one up to you and it's actually really stupid. The fallacy of composition says that the whole of its parts does not need the same cause as the parts of it. So for instance, um, if you say every part of an elephant is light, therefore the entire elephant is light, that's obviously a logical fallacy. The whole elephant isn't light just because every part of it is light. So they would say this argument commits the fallacy of composition because just because every part of the universe needs a cause, that doesn't mean that the whole universe needs a cause. But that's not what we're arguing. We are using a deductive philosophical argument so that if you accept the premises, you have to accept the conclusion. If everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, then it follows inescapably that the universe had a cause. So it does not commit that fallacy, obviously. It's to ask why is it only universes that are apt to come out of nothing? Why isn't it just unicorns or why isn't it baseball bats or other things as well? So objection number six. 
Here's an interesting one proposed by Richard Dawkins. He'll say, even if we accept this argument, it still doesn't prove a loving God of the Bible. It doesn't prove that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exists. It just proves that some God exists. Okay, well, then you agree that God exists, and then we should just move on from there. The argument isn't intended to prove you that Jesus exists. It, it's intended to prove that God exists. And you form through various arguments, you can see what kind of God he is. Cosmological argument shows you that God is powerful. It sprayed a lot of spit. <laughs> powerful enough to create the universe and everything within it. The teleological argument is a design argument. It shows you that God has beauty and he has nature and he designs things for a purpose. The ontological argument shows you his character. The moral argument shows you that he's good. And we're not trying to do that all in one argument, obviously. It'd just be weird. So objection eight would be something like, you just believe because you're Christian. So you want to believe that God exists. And that's why you follow after these arguments. Number one, that's not why I believe in God. I don't believe in God just because someone gave me the cosmological argument. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. I want to believe in God. You know, we have other reasons for believing in God. What this does for us is it justifies the reason that's within us, shows us that we're on the right track. Also, just because I'm a Christian doesn't nullify the, the truth of the belief, just like with a genetic fallacy. For instance, what if I tried to prove to you that Lincoln was the greatest president on planet Earth? And I said, well, you can look at the historical data. This is what he did. These are the laws that he passed. This is why you should believe Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president on earth. But what if secretly, I didn't tell anyone this, the only reason that I said that Lincoln is the greatest president is because I, I really thought that he, he had a great beard. And because he had a great beard and I wanted a beard, that's why I wanted him to be the best president. That still has nothing to nullify the truth of the argument that I proposed. It's ad hominem in logical terms, but you don't need to know that. So objection nine, they might say, you have made God unfalsifiable. Anytime we say, well, this is why God doesn't exist, you give us a reason. Have you ever heard that? That's kind of funny too. They'll say, well, you've made God unfalsifiable. So anytime that we find science and we say, this is why God doesn't exist, then you just kind of move them over. God doesn't produce miracles. Well, maybe God doesn't want to do miracles. God doesn't heal me. Well, maybe God didn't want to heal you. And so that you, anytime that you have uh, an objection, the Christian always has an answer. But obviously, that does not disprove God, number one. And they might say something like, well, what about the flying spaghetti monster? The flying spaghetti monster and the flying teapot and the invisible pink unicorn, these are just parodies of God where they'll say, well, we can't disprove God, but you can't disprove the flying spaghetti monster. What's the flying spaghetti monster? The flying spaghetti monster is all-powerful. He created the universe. He existed before the Big Bang. And he's made of spaghetti. And we, the Pastafarians, follow after him. I'm not even joking. You can go on Google and look this stuff up. And we worship him for his spaghetti noodliness. And they'll say all these things about flying spaghetti monster. And they'll say to you, well, you can't, you know, we can't disprove that God exists. But you can't disprove that the flying spaghetti monster doesn't exist either. Well, it's very easy to disprove the flying spaghetti monster. And that's because the flying spaghetti monster is made of material. It's made of matter. Anything that's made of matter cannot exist before the universe, universe was created. Now, if you say he's immaterial, then all you've done is give a different name for God. And you should believe that God ex exists. Moving on. So, naturalism's best statement, I think, 
is when they say stuff like, we obviously aren't able to understand the origins of the universe just yet with our current knowledge, but give us time, give science time and we'll get there soon. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like faith. It sounds like we're gonna deny all the current evidence we have now and just go with our intuition that one day, one day science will be able to prove that there is no God. So, all right, I'm gonna jump through this one really fast and I'll give you some time for questions. I know you've been sitting for like 20 minutes, but that's probably more than you can handle anyway. Uh, teleological argument. This is the argument from design. The argument that the world is ordered in such a way that is suited for life. And it's based on this uh, popular analogy. Let's say that you're walking in a forest and you stumbled upon a watch. And you thought this, this, uh, this rainforest didn't have any people in it, but you saw the watch on the ground and you assumed there must be civilization nearby. You would be justified in believing the civilization is nearby even if you didn't see it. You would have reason to believe that someone made the watch, created the watch and designed the watch even if you didn't know the designer, even if you didn't know who created it or seen the person while he made it. It's because there's something called the irreducible complexity of the thing that you have which shows that someone must have designed those things. So the argument goes like this. Every design has a designer. Not like a fashion designer, but like every design has a designer. Number two, the universe has complex design. So three, the universe has a designer. This is another modus ponens uh, philosophical argument if you want another technical, technical term. These are philosoph philosophical arguments where the form is inescapably valid. Which means that if you accept the premises, you must accept the conclusion. Whether you believe it or not, whether you think it's agreeable or not, whether you like it or not, you have to accept the conclusion. We see amazing complexity in the universe that we have. 21% of oxygen in the air is just right for human life. Gravitational force is perfect for life to exist. Distance from the sun provides the right heat for life. Expansion rate of the universe is just right for life. Thickness of the earth's crust is the correct amount for life. Tilt of the earth, the speed of light, strong nuclear force, distance between the stars, cosmological constant. In other words, the energy density of space, the right amount of seismic activity, and the position of Jupiter protects life from earth. All these things are fine-tuned so that life could exist. So that if any one of these things were changed, life would not be permittable on earth. And we also see the complexity inside our own bodies. In a single amoeba, it contains the same amount of information that would fill 1,000 encyclopedias. Michael Behe says, the conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books or sectarian beliefs. Inferring that biochemical systems were designed by an intelligent agent is a humdrum process that requires no new principles of logic or science. So the earth is designed, we are designed, therefore we require a designer. If you go to Mount Rushmore, you don't look at Mount Rushmore and say, wow, that's awesome, that billions of years can create such a fabulous sculpture. You would say, wow, who made Mount Rushmore? Because we see design in things. It's called the anthropic principle. So here are some objections to this one. And I've thought of these myself over time. And that's why I despise apologetics for a long time. I despise apologetics for a long time because I thought these things were so easily refuted until I realized that they do have some worth and some ground. And I'm going to go over some of those objections right now. Objection one. 
Many skeptics would argue that the universe isn't designed, but humans are just inclined to see organization in everything. So what I, what I mean by that? I mean, you go on the news and people say, I saw the face of Jesus in a piece of toast. I was washing my wall and I saw the face of Mary or I saw Elvis. I looked up at a cloud and I saw a rabbit or an umbrella or a mushroom and we see whatever we want because, you know, you look at cars and we see faces in the cars because humans are designed in a certain way or they're apt or evolved in a certain way that makes us want to see design in other people. So what if instead of design, we just gave the universe lots of time and chance? Well, here's the thing. Let's say, because this is where it goes back to, I'm not saying it's provable beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm saying what's more likely? What is more reasonable to believe? So for instance, let's say you're playing me in poker. The chances of getting a royal flush are one in 600,000. Let's say you play me one game, I got a royal flush, my first hand. It's pretty cool. You lost all your money. Let's say we played a second time, another royal flush. Wow, that's crazy. And then we got another royal flush the third time. What would you say that was happening right, right then and there? I'm cheating, right? What if I told you, well, just given a lot of time and chance, we just happen to find ourselves in the universe in which I always get a royal flush. We're not saying that it's impossible. We're saying what is more reasonable to believe? It's going around the same argument. If you were walking in the woods and you found a glass ball on the floor, you'd be justified in asking, where did that ball come from? If you took the ball and expanded it to the size of a car, you wouldn't say, wow, it just got there. You'd be even more justified in wondering why it got there. If you took the ball and you enlarged it to the size of the planet or even the whole universe, you still would not have any more reason to say, wow, it must have just got there. So in the same way, just because we want to believe that the universe just got there doesn't mean that it doesn't need a reason for being there. Here's objection number two. Things could have happened by chance and not design. So here's the answer. First of all, the chances are virtually zero. Secondly, science is not based on chance, but on regularity. It's on what we can empirically observe. And third, chance is not a cause. Even evolutionary biologists agree that when we, they talk about random chance, it's not really randomness. It's designed in a certain way that it always, uh, they're actually calling it design chance or this weird term now, so it always wants to produce results that are for the benefit of the individual. Objection number three, there is a lack of design in nature. They'll say there are things in us that have no purpose. Your appendix or things like that. Why would God create such a lousy design if this, if this is design? So the answer is just because there's no known purpose does not mean that there is no purpose. Perhaps God has a reason why the appendix exists. Perhaps God has reasons for uh, other things in nature. Secondly, we now know a purpose for many things that we know did not have a purpose previously, like the appendix, people have researched and stuff like that, but that's just an example. And we might also find a purpose for the rest of the things. So it's kind of weird to uh, try to refute it just based on that. Objection four, some designs are not perfect. In other words, there is a waste or where the universe is going towards a heat death. So why would God create a world in which all of these things don't work the right way? You know, you break your bones, you stub your toe and things go wrong, you start bleeding. It seems like we're created in this very bad type of design. 
So the answer to that is bad design still needs a designer. If you have really bad design, it doesn't mean that you don't need a designer. Also, we know that even the bad uses can be used for something greater. God uses evil for purposes. And we also know in the doctrine of Christianity, we know that sin is what caused the fall, which caused uh, a lot of the difficulties and the natural evils that you see around you. So finally, I'm just going to add this to the plane to just kind of finish off uh, some interesting things that might be a little bit above your brains, but that's okay because I think a lot of you are smarter than you try to make yourself look. I think you're just humble, but I'll just throw them out here. These are not even from a Christian. This is from an atheist named Thomas Nagel. He gives four arguments why he believes that materialism, the belief that only physical things exist, is entirely false and will be a laughingstock in a matter of years. Number one, he'll say that brain states do not equal mental states. So it's called anti-reductionism. What that means is if you believe that there is no God, you believe that only material things, only physical things, and natural things exist, meaning there is no supernatural, there are no spirits, no demons, no ghosts, no gods. If you believe that all that stuff, all the souls, all those things are just explainable by physical phenomena, then you're left with the problem. How do brain states equal mental states? Brain states are things that are inside of your brain and are caused by electrons firing in your brain. Mental states are what it is actually like to have thoughts and you can imagine yourself doing things and you have that privileged access in your brain to imagine things and see the pictures, whereas people outside of your brain look at your brain and see electrons firing. But what is, what is the connection between brain states and mental states? You can't say that they just are brain states. All mental states are brain states without some kind of equation that says they are or equal those things. To say that one thing is the other means that they can't be separate from the other. So when you have H2O and water, that means that the two things cannot be separate from each other. You can't have H2O without water. But you can imagine brain states without mental states. You can even imagine not being in a body and floating around as a soul, or you can imagine the opposite. You can have your brain firing and stuff and still be in a vegetative state where you're not producing consciousness. So brain states are not mental states. Some things really exist apart from matter. Number two, consciousness. Why did the universe, if it's all about evolution and bringing things into existence, why are we conscious beings and we're not just trees? What's so good about being conscious beings? Why didn't the universe just produce life that didn't think, that didn't feel, that didn't love? Why is it conscious beings? It seems that consciousness itself needs a reason for existing. Number three, cognition. If we are just the products of evolution, chance, time, and uh, whatever else, randomness, why is it that we can believe the contents of our brain? This is a trippy one. If evolution is all about what is the progress of the organism, is all about uh, natural selection and what is best for you, why should you believe the truth over a lie? You should not believe your cognitive faculties. In other words, when you're seeing the world, you believe what you see because you need to survive, right? So that's what evolutionary biology would tell you. You believe what you see so that you can survive. You believe that there's a fruit there so you can eat it and survive. But why should you believe the truth over a lie, especially when it's disadvantageous for your survival? 
Number four, value. Why would we have morals if we're all just material, if we're all just matter, and there's not anything beyond us, if there's no spiritual element to us, why do we do good over evil? Why prefer good? Why even have terms like good and evil? Why help the sick? Why help the poor? It doesn't make any sense. And that would go into the moral argument, which we'll save for another time. Or you can look up our argument on uh, when we did apologetics on homosexuality, where I briefly went over that as well. So, time is up.